If we haven't met, my name's JD. It's good to see you this morning. I know there's a thousand places you could be. Some of them have air conditioning, some of them don't. Uh, and you're choosing to be here, and that means an awful lot. Um, I'm going to pull this cup of water a little closer to me just in case I need it. Somebody said this morning, they were like, everybody's wearing shorts. You didn't wear shorts. I said, look, I don't want you to not pass out from heat stroke, but then pass out because you saw my chicken legs. Uh, So that just didn't seem like the best move. Um, But I'm really, really glad you're here. If you need to use a restroom, they're right over here. Um, Parents, when we get done today, if you need to go check your kids out, we check them out out here in the lobby. We tried to make every arrangement that we could to make it as cool as possible in here. If if you notice, today may be the day you need to know it most, but the cool zones are right here on the first couple of rows and then uh, in the back four rows. Last week, somebody was like, I'm dying in here. And Natalie said, I'm going to wear a sweater next week because if you sit back there on the row where she is, that is the coolest uh, spot in the building. So we don't put brass plates uh, on anything in this church building, naming it after anybody. But my wife will find if she's ever going to name a like get a brass plate, it's going to be for her chair back there under the air conditioning in summer. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, lifting where we're talking lifting where we're talking about how we can do the heavy lifting of discipleship because Jesus has done the heavy lifting of salvation. And we've been sort of in a series within the series last couple of weeks talking about idolatry, uh, which we'll define here in a moment. But I want to read you, uh, this is from uh, Jim Gray's book called Talking to Goats. It's about his interviews with some of the world's most elite athletes, politicians, uh, and global leaders. And in this chapter, he's talking about uh, his relationship with Tiger Woods and about how he actually met Tiger Woods. If you remember the Nike commercial uh, from years ago when Tiger Woods is a little boy and he's talking about he's going to grow up and win all the major championships, that actually was a, an interview that Jim Gray did with Tiger Woods and his family when he was a little boy, I mean, less than 10 years old. And so he's, he's followed the career and the life of Tiger Woods uh, from literally from childhood. And regarding uh, some stuff Tiger Woods went through, he says this. He said, Tiger had a few other public issues. Uh, some people felt he ran afoul of decorum with rules violations that he took heat for. There was a DUI arrest in 2017 where he put other lives at risk. But mostly it was personal issues that became uncomfortably public. Anybody in here golf fans? Uh, and, and by like golf fans, I mean not just like you put it on on Sunday afternoon to take a nap to because golf and NASCAR are God's ways to help people slow down enough to fall asleep, just cars making left turns or uh, grown people hitting a stick and a ball forever. So uh, it, his life becomes uncomfortably public. And the reaction to these, those moments loop back to the same premise. An icon or an an idol, my words, who had sold himself one way and lived a completely different life. We've seen this happen with all kinds of different people. We won't pile on on Tiger this morning. He said this, who suffered the most from that? Easy, him, his family. But then this sentence, when I read this, this is powerful. He said, the public that felt let down by Tiger had misplaced its faith in him by pouring their hope into him outside of golf. So it's not just that people love Tiger Woods like for what he was doing for 18 holes four times in the course of a weekend. It was like wrapping up even more hope in this person. He said, we should never look at athletes, no matter how kind or accessible or philanthropic, as deities, as more than men or women. I mean, Jim Gray is no Christian, like, but he really, in this book, talks about 
kind of something that's going on in our culture. He sees, because he follows these people so closely, how much we do this, how much we can turn athletes and politicians and other people into quasi-deities. And so I'm thankful for that because it's not just me, right? Like it's not just me that turns people or stuff or accomplishments into deities. We all do this. In the same book, he talks about Michael Phelps. And he talks about his relationship with Michael Phelps, the champion Olympic swimmer, and how Michael Phelps, from, a, from less than 10 years old, demanded perfection of himself in the swimming pool. How can I make the more perfect turn? How can I get the more perfect stroke? How can I race the most perfect race? The problem for Michael Phelps became that that began, that idol of perfectionism and getting everything right began to bleed over into other areas of his life. And Jim Gray talks about how Michael Phelps demanded that same perfection of himself in his marriage and with his children and as a mentor and as a friend to the point that Michael Phelps actually became suicidal thinking, I can't live under the weight of this idol of perfection. Timothy Keller, in a couple of his books, Timothy Keller was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in Manhattan. And Timothy Keller talks about Madonna in a couple of his books. And in, in a very famous interview with Madonna, he talks about how she began to understand that uh, being famous in entertainment was fleeting. And so she began to idolize being unique and being interesting. And so she would put out an album and it would receive wide acclaim because everyone would say, oh, she's unique and she's interesting. No woman has ever done it this way. No one's ever done it quite like Madonna. The problem was that the idol of uniqueness and being interesting forced her to then have to be more unique and interesting. And she began to be chased by demons of fear of mediocrity. And there became this cycle of needing to be interesting and unique and the weight and the pressure that came with it. And Eventually, like, that doesn't last for anyone ever, right? Like, nobody can be constantly unique and interesting. Uh, I was reading in Arthur Brooks, uh, who's a professor, I believe, at Harvard uh, Business School. He was talking in his book, From Strength to Strength, about Anthony Bourdain, who, you know, is the guy with no reservations, and I can't think of the name of the other show, but Anthony Bourdain lived this brilliant life with these brilliantly filmed reality shows about food and travel and just made all of this look so fascinating and interesting and what none of us realized until he took his own life in June of, what, 2018, 2016. No one realized that under the pressure of being uh, exotic and fascinating and compelling uh, became this immense loneliness because he was constantly having to go to new places and meet new people. He became an increasingly lonely person and that sort of root idol of loneliness began to manifest itself in a fruit idol of alcoholism and depression until he took his life six years ago, crumbling under the weight of the idol of always having to be on the go and be seen as being successful. What uh, in your life, what good or creative thing, because all these are good things, right? Like excellence is a good thing. Being creative is a good thing, like exploring new places and seeing things and helping people understand the world in a more beautiful and robust way is a good thing. What good created things in your life have overpromised and under-delivered? 
over-promising and under-delivering. Like an idol is a good thing. We've defined, I think we have a slide for this. We've defined an idol as any good created thing that becomes an ultimate thing, dethroning God, the creator in my heart. An idol is a good thing, a cre- but it's a created thing. It's not like a little statue of a Buddha or a little statue of a totem pole necessarily or a little statue of that. Those are, re- those are sort of pre-modern or non-Western, for the most part, sort of ideas about idolatry. The way we do idols, our idols are much more presentable. My idols are really presentable. And they look good and they look fine and people would go, oh, those are great things. But anytime a good created thing then becomes an ultimate thing, it dethrones God, the creator, in my heart. Like it literally all comes down to we're all worshiping. Everyone in here is a worshiper of something. But the question is, am I a worshiper of the creator? Or, and the only other choice, am I a worshiper of something that he has created? And we talked about, I think we have a slide for this as well, how there are fruit idols. And this is what we think of. Like when we, when we have an idol, you know, some of you have come up to me after messages or during the course of the week and said, man, God's really exposing the idol of blank in my life. And it's usually something we can touch, right? Like, It's our calendar, or it's our wallet, or it's a relationship with somebody, and these things become idols. But a lot of times those are fruit idols because of a root idol. A root idol. Got choked up on my own spit. Um, These root idols are isms, perfectionism, workaholism, these isms, these things that begin to drive us and tell us you have to do something. And the root idol then exposes itself, becomes manifest in a fruit idol. And a lot of times we don't even see these because we also have orchard idols where people born into countries and regions and families and ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic classes and all of these things. And so it's literally sometimes hard to see our sinful American individualism because we're Americans. Or when I would go to Sweden, there's a part of the Swedish worldview called the Jantelagen. And Swedes don't even see Jantelagen because it, to be Swedish is to believe in Jantelagen. But as an American looking at the law of Janta, you can see it. And when people from Sweden come here, they go, oh, you Americans, you're so individualistic. Because these are orchard idols. We live in them. Materialism, individualism. This fierce democracy and capitalism that can become like almost neglectful of other people sometimes. These are orchard idols. Or like if you're from my family, the orchard idol in my family was passive aggressive conflict. My grandmother would never tell you she was mad at you. She would just be mad at you for three days and kind of hold you like this. And then finally, after about three days, my granddad would always be like, hey, snap out of it. Stop it. And she would kind of like recalibrate and life would go on. They'd work it out. This was an orchard idol. Everyone in my family either does passive aggressive conflict or has to fight against it and rebels against it, right? It's an orchard idol for my family. Fruit, orchard, and root idols. We all have them. The struggle is not new or local to our area or local to you or unique to us. John Calvin 500 years ago said that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly making things that would replace the creator in our heart, created things. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3 today. We'll, we'll put the verses up on the screen. I'm going to read a little chunk of, of Colossians where Paul is talking a bit about idolatry. And um, 
and then we'll kind of go through it pretty methodically but quickly. Paul says this in Colossians 3, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I love that Paul starts with if. He starts with if, and I'm gonna show you this. You've seen this drawing uh, the last couple of weeks, but if you haven't been here, I'll show you. Uh, God has a best for everyone and everything. We kind of intuitively know that God has a best. We, when we see in our world something that is not God's best, we experience that as brokenness. So wherever we see brokenness, we know that we're not living into God's best. And we do this, right? Like how many of you can look at a moment this week and go, oh, I can tell you a moment where I experienced brokenness. Maybe it was self-inflicted. Maybe it was because someone else not living out God's best. But whenever we experience brokenness, the reason is because of sin. We experience brokenness because we do not choose God's best every time. And anything other than God's best is sin. And so here's what we do. We've shared this in the series. So many times we try to sort of trampoline out of our brokenness or medicate it or just ignore it. And we do that whenever we do this, whenever we sort of try to trampoline out, that's an idol. And an idol is, it could be like, I'm going to deal with my brokenness by going shopping. I'm going to deal with my brokenness by going on vacation. I'm going to deal with my brokenness by working harder and being more successful or getting another couple of letters behind my last name. I'm going to deal with my brokenness by going to church and praying more and giving more and trying to do more. And the problem with it is we can never trampoline out of our brokenness, even with religion. Even being here today is not going to medicate the brokenness. We will still know at the end we are not living God's best. We'll wonder. And so Paul starts the passage with this idea of if then, if you are God's child, because here, as we've shared is the truth. The good news of the gospel, the gospel is our only hope. The gospel is that we can't work our way up to God, so God in Christ comes down to us, and Jesus lives sinlessly, sinlessly, dies sacrificially, and then rises victoriously from the dead. And the gospel is our hope to get out of brokenness, and we receive the gospel by repenting or turning And believing that God is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. That Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. And then when we receive the gospel, the biblical word for that is being born again. But the truth is what God's doing is he's allowing us, our hearts to be restored and to be agents of restoration in the world. This is God's plan to fix brokenness. It's not that you can ignore it and we definitely can't medicate it. But we bring our brokenness to Jesus and we trust him and he begins to restore us to God's best. Now, here's the thing. There has to be a moment in our lives where we cross over. There has to be a moment where we cross over and we receive the gospel. And I don't know if you've done that, and you don't know if I've done that. We can kind of look at the fruit of one another's lives, but we don't know. And Paul knew this church in Colossae. He knew them. He's writing to them about the specific things that they're dealing with. He knows them, and yet he still starts with, if you have been raised 
with Christ. If you have done this, are you today a follower of Jesus? Only God knows. I don't know. And being here doesn't necessarily mean that you or I are. Have you given your life to Jesus? If you have not, if there's not a moment where you say, oh, I became a follower of Christ, I received Christ, let me ask you today what's keeping you from doing that. God knows. Only you know and God knows. I don't know. We know based on the profession of our faith, but only God knows and you know your heart. Even Paul didn't presume to know theirs. Verse two, continuing on. Or let me, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. So for anyone who has crossed over, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse two, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says, you have died. He says, you've died. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and come after me. We die. What it means to be a Christian is we die to our rights. We die to all sorts, uh, sorts of individuality. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, um, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It's a great mystery. How am I living and yet totally surrendered? Jesus didn't like possess me like some weird 70s horror movie. Like, and yet at the same time, I've died. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life to me first, or for me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You have died. I have died. We are hidden with Christ. So we've died. We're hidden with Christ in God, he says in John 14, 20. Jesus says, on that day, you will realize, Christian, that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So if you can think about four envelopes or three envelopes and a piece of paper and you take the big envelope and write God on it, then Jesus would say, you take the, the, the next biggest envelope and you write Jesus on it. Then you take the next one, you write your name on it. And then on the last one you take, you write Jesus or God's spirit on the last thing and you put God's spirit in the envelope that's you, you seal it up. Then you take the envelope that's you with the spirit in it, you seal it up, you put it in Jesus. Then you take the one that says Jesus, you seal it up and you put it in God. And to be a Christian means that your life is hidden in Christ and Christ's life is hidden in God. That's what it means to be a believer. We've died. He is living in us and we are living in him. He is our life. Christ is our life. I don't know how many of you watch Ted uh, Lasso. Does anybody here watch Ted Lasso? Big Ted Lasso fan here. Uh, I love Danny Rojas. I love how he's always like, football is life. Football is life. And if you watched uh, the most recent season, there's a moment where he ends up in counseling. Uh, spoiler alert. Like he ends up, in, Danny ends up in counseling because he failed at life, he failed in a moment in football, in soccer. And it undoes everything for him. He's having panic attacks and everything else. So he ends up seeing a therapist and he walks out and it's a great moment where he's talking to the coach and he says, here's what I learned. Football is life. Sometimes football is life. Sometimes football is death. But mostly football is just football. Like mostly it just is what it is. 
And man, what a beautiful way to think about our idols and the things we love more than Jesus. Christ is our life, verses one through four say, and Christ is taking our life somewhere. This life is not it. Therefore, let's, uh, so I think we have a slide for this about identity. Identity uproots idolatry. Remembering who we are in light of those first four verses uproots our idolatry. It begins the process of uprooting our idols. So it's not if I eliminate my idols, then I'll be saved and Christ will love me and I'll be alive in Christ and I'll be on the way. I don't know your idol today. Like I don't know the, your Mount Rushmore of idols. I could tell you mine if you want to go to lunch one day, but it'll be a long lunch. It's a long list, but God is uprooting a lot of them. And they don't have the power they used to as Jesus begins to win my life because I'm in him. He doesn't, Jesus isn't sitting around waiting for you to deal with your Mount Rushmore of idols. He loves you. And his love is the thing, identity, who we are in Christ begins to uproot our idolatry, not our idolatry dictating around our identity. A thousand no's to that. It's identity first. Identity is who I am, whose I am, and where I'm going. And as we understand that, it uproots idolatry. Drew and I had coffee this morning, and, or not this morning, this week one morning. And um, one of the things I told him as he was getting ready to leave is, man, I just want you to take a day and grab your Bible and list as many things that the Bible says about who you are in Christ and what is yours in Christ. If we could just, Christians in the room, list 50 different things that are true of who we are in Christ and what we therefore have, it would begin to uproot our idolatry. Sometimes we just don't know whose we are. Verses five through 11, continuing on, Paul then says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, not that we're supposed to be unemotional people, but sort of sexual, sinful, worldly passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God's coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. Here there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Jesus says, who you are in Christ, is, and who we are in Christ, all that other stuff. Oh, I'm Italian. Oh, I'm Irish. Oh, I'm of whatever. No, 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 no. Oh, my family came from money. Oh, my family came from nothing. No, 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 no. Oh, I'm blue-collar union worker. Oh, I'm a white-collar business person. No, no, no. And here... We're all family. We're all family. If Christ is in us, Christ is in all, and we are one. And so all those little idols that would seek to differentiate us and drive us apart, he says, no, 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 no. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and come together. And not only that, like put away all sexual immorality, anything sexually that is less than God's best, put away all the toxic emotions of anger and how they manifest themselves, slander and gossip and all of this stuff, put it all away. Anything in your life that is not God's best and is an idol, get it out. Get it out, he would say. Put it off and not just the fruit of it. Cut off the supply lines of the things that are causing you to stumble. The idols, like deal with the idol. So like if this is my idol, 
and I'm on it all the time, I've got to begin to find a way to cut the supply line of it and deal with it and get it out, but not just the fruit. I've got to also deal with the orchard part of it. I've got to be self-aware enough to know, look, this is a place where my Christian faith is different than how my family does conflict. Or this is a place where my biblical worldview is different than the gospel, than what our culture is saying it means to be American or New Englander or whatever it may be. And we've got to deal with those orchard idols, but most of all, we've got to deal with the root thing in us. The fears, the angers, the control, the fear of not having control. We've got to begin to deal with the root causes of these things and cut off the supply lines. There's three sort of images that Paul is talking about here. One, he's talking about taking off the robes, put off anger, put off sexual immorality, put off all of these things. It's like the the tattered rags of a slave. He says, take those off. Get those off. If you're a child of God, if you're still dressing in the robes of a slave, the ragged, stinky, smelly, embarrassing robes of a slave, and you're a child of the king, take them off. Get them off. Put them off. Get them out of your life. The second image that's here is the idea of something like a body part being gangrene. In verses 5 and 8 and 11, he talks about how you've got to put these things to death. You've got to get rid of them. You've got to be rid of these things. We, you know, we think about Jesus when he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And we go, well, how would Jesus tell me to get rid of a good eye and a good hand? It's how I write. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, it might be that your right eye or your right hand is gangrene and it's causing you to sin. And if you leave it, it's going to poison you and it's going to kill your whole body. Paul's doing the same thing here. He says, put to death those things that are sinful. He's not saying, like, if my pinky is the most sinful part of me, he's not saying, cut your pinky off because it's a perfectly healthy pinky. He's saying, cut your pinky off because your pinky is going to ruin the rest of your hand. And your hand's going to have to be amputated if you don't deal with this thing. Oh, man, well, I don't want to lose my hand, so whew, I'm not doing that. Like, oh, well, then you're going to lose your arm. I remember there was a guy at the, this church I worked at, and he uh, had a toothache, and he didn't deal with it. And I, re, like, I remember the pastor saying, we got to go to the hospital, and we got to go see this guy. He is on the verge of death. And I said, well, what's he dying of? He goes, he's got an infected tooth that he didn't deal with and now it has poisoned his entire body. This is the image. When Paul talks about putting off, cutting off, getting rid of our idols, he's saying, these aren't just good things in your life. No, these are uh, created things that have become ultimate things and you've got to get them out. They're gangrene, they're going to kill you. The last thing would be the idea of alien intruders. These things do not belong, Christian. The idols that we hang on to and we think, oh man, that's just part of who I am. Especially the ones that are deeply us. And like, how many of you in the room have been a follower of Jesus for 10 years or more? Good, yeah, several of us, not all of us. How many of you who have been followers of Jesus for 10 years or more also have idols in your life that have been part of your life for 10 years or more? Yeah. They can become so deeply ingrained in us that we think, oh, it's just who I am. It's not who you are. We've been changed. 
These are alien intruders like an Independence Day. These are aliens that want to destroy the White House and whatever that building is in Los Angeles and all the tall buildings unless Will Smith and, uh, and Randy from Christmas Vacation come and save us. This is not how it's supposed to be. You cut off the supply lines. Uh, the next, let me, go, let me go down just a little bit further. Colossians 3, finishing off this passage, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Put on humility, Put on meekness, put on patience. Bearing, verse 13, bear with one another. And if somebody has a complaint against somebody else, forgiving each other, just like the Lord's forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Put on like a robe. You're putting on the, child of, the, the robe of the child of the king. Put those things on. And then like a belt that ties it up, verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds it all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. These are all corporate verses, but man, they hit at our hearts, right? Like, is there any bit of this that you go, ooh, that might be missing from my life? Especially when I'm letting these win the day, these things are missing from my life. Peace, and lay down your life, love, and compassion, and humility, Yesterday, we were going over to the West End to go swimming with Jamie and his family. And like, I, by the time, listen, people, people like were being guided by stupidity from Charlestown to the West End yesterday. And the first person like literally pulled into the middle of that intersection at Memorial Drive and what I call the Prison Point Bridge. And um, I can't remember the Museum of Science Street, literally pulled in the middle of the intersection and just stopped. Like, and, I'm, and I've got to go around them. So I'm going around this guy, trying to make my way around him, stopped in the middle of the intersection. Not a bunch of other cars, not a line of six cars, just a dude stopped in the middle of the intersection. So I'm going around from the one turn lane that goes onto that road, and here comes a car from the middle lane turning right, coming at me. So now I'm avoiding the dummy uh, in, the, in the middle of the intersection, trying to also not get hit by the dummy, turning left from the straight lane, and I laid into the horn. And man, when I tell you I laid into the horn, like don't hear a love tap. Like hear a long, long honk of the horn. Anybody do this one? Uh, yeah. And as if that, and so Natalie now is beginning to roll her eyes like she, like she does at me when I act like a jerk face. And so then the person goes, not only flying around me from the wrong lane, then cuts me off to then get in the turn lane to go into Cambridge Crossing. And going around this person, I laid into the horn and I stared at her all the way by. And at this point, I'm thankful that there was no lawyer in the car because Natalie might have drafted divorce papers. Like, it was really just a moment where sin was winning and the gospel was losing. And Paul says, put on compassion and humility and patience and lay down your life love. But in that moment, an idol of control and safety overtook my heart and my right hand and I laid into that horn. Paul would say in, oh, and let me finish. All right, so then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing each other in wisdom and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. In light of all of these things, put on these things as God's children, put on these things. Identity uproots idolatry. A new identity, giving your life to Jesus, when you cross over, begins to breed new thought patterns. It begins to breed a new lifestyle. It breeds new priorities and new relationships and new decisions and new places. Some of you have shared some of this stuff with me. You're like, the things I used to love to do, I just don't love to do the same way anymore. That's the gospel winning in your life. That's putting on as God's chosen ones who are already holy and beloved. You're putting these things on because God loves you and he's declared you holy. Listen, I want to tell you, there's no vacuum of good intentions and abandoned idols. The cure for idolatry is you have to replace the idols, not just get them out of your life. We can't just get them gone, put off those things. We also have to put on some things, put on these traits, put on Christ likeness, put on spiritual disciplines. Jesus says in Luke 11, he said, it's like someone sweeps a house clean of something, uh, spirits is what he's talking about. He's like someone sweeps the house of an evil spirit and then they leave and they don't do anything to replace it. And the spirit takes it, basically a stroll around the neighborhood, comes back, but brings six of its friends. And so if you used to be controlled by something that wasn't the gospel and you get rid of the thing, but you don't replace it with a lifestyle of restoration, guess what? It's more inclined to come back and you're going to come back to that struggle. That's why, and, and Paul writes this as a community verse because we have to look out for each other. Nikki needs to be able to look out for Natalie and Natalie needs to be able to look out for Nikki and Steve handed me a book this morning. I need to care for Stephen's soul and he needs to care for my soul. And Ed needs to check in on me and I need to check in on Ed. And this is what we do. Like this is how we become people of restoration. We replace the fruit with good fruit. We replace the root thinking and beliefs and patterns. It's not just behavior modification. God's not saying, hey, I want you to spin differently. God says, I want the gospel to change your heart and you become generous people, not greedy people. But you can't just tighten up your budget. God's got to do a work on our hearts. And so we replace all of that, not just changing our behavior. And then he says, put on the garments, put on robes of royalty. I remember uh, the first time I ever made all-stars in baseball. Uh, I played for the Tigers. And uh, man, we had, you know, I was what they called husky. Uh, and so my little baseball pants, uh, you know, they were, you would go in this, uh, you know, you would go at, basically to a garage at the beginning of the season. And I was just like trying to find a little pair of baseball pants that would fit me. And I found a pair that probably should have fit on one leg, but it actually had to fit on two legs. And I get them and, you know, I'm wearing them and they're pretty tight back then in 85, 86, right? And I get this little black and yellow baseball shirt and the little stirrups, a little, you know, a little um, socks and and over the course of a season, like, because I, I, I love baseball, I played hard, my pants would have tears in them, and mom would have to wash them all the time, so they became even tighter, and, uh, and I mean, they're just a mess, and, and you play in Georgia, and the red mud, and so they're stained, what was white pants are now orange, and, and I got selected to play All-Stars, and I remember you, the way it worked was before there was even one practice, you would come, and you would bring your old uniform and you would turn it in, and then they gave you a new one. And the pants fit again, and the 
shirt was an all-star shirt and it was red, white, and blue and it had our little little league name on it. And man, I was somebody. And that's what the gospel does. It takes off the tattered, dirty, broken, doesn't even fit robes of sin and struggle and idolatry. And it puts us in something new and something good that says that we are God's children and we matter to him. Verse 16 says, let the word of God, we, 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 we put on this stuff by the word of God and by worship in the church. We need one another as we actively replace our idols. Being comes before doing, but we have to give this stuff out. It can't be Howard saying, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm also going to follow this other thing. Oh, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm also going to let there be deep brokenness here. Oh, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to trust him, but I'm also going to be a control freak. We can't. That, the word for that is syncretism. It's taking the gospel and adding something to it so it actually isn't even the gospel anymore. And there's a lot of people in our world who if you ask them they're a Christian and they might believe parts of the gospel, but they believe parts of a lot of other things too. And the word for that is syncretism. It's embracing Jesus and embracing other religions. It's having a cross on the wall at your house while also having a Buddha and tarot cards and all kinds of other manner of everything else. It's syncretism. You, if Jesus is going to hang on the wall or the cross, you've got to get rid of all the other crap. The same thing in our hearts. The same thing has to happen in our hearts. We, we've got to get rid of the idols and replace them with God's Word And so I think we have a, the, the last um, slides we'll do before we get to the questions. Here's what idolatry is. Let me, let me just show you a picture. In idolatry, we use God and we use people, but we love and worship stuff. Ending this idolatry sort of three-week mini-series, in idolatry, we use God and use people, but we love and worship stuff. Right? Does that make sense? That's, that certainly makes sense to me. Will you share the gospel one with me, Juliana? Here's godliness. We use stuff, we love people, we worship Christ. That's the gospel. If you find yourself using people or using God, like God's your kind of magic eight ball or your bailout, you might have an idol problem. God doesn't want to be used. God wants to be worshiped. We find ourselves using people. What can this person do for me? What can this person, how can they help me? How can they get ahead? And we don't really know people. Like, know them. God wants us to know each other so we can speak into one another's life and lay down our life and love people. If we're not loving people in a way that's self-sacrificing, we might have an idol problem. Because godliness is using stuff, loving people, and worshiping Christ. That's why at the end, Paul says, therefore, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your heart. Um, that's godliness. Use uh, use stuff to love people and worship Christ and do it all in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Let me ask a couple of diagnostic questions we'll be done. First one, is there anything gangrene and alien in your heart as a follower of Christ? If you're a Christian today, if you would say, oh, I've crossed over, is there anything uh, gangrene and alien in your heart that doesn't belong? And maybe we've kind of gone, oh, it's just who I am. Oh, it's just, it's just what I do. It's who I am. No, 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 no. It is gangrene, it is alien, it is a threat, it will poison you. Is there anything in your life that is alien and foreign and sickening in your heart? And then the second question, 
What traits do you need to then put in as you replace those things? What traits do you need to put in as a child of God? As a child of God, what needs to go into your life? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me ask you, what would be preventing you from crossing over and being done with brokenness and idolatry and receiving the gospel and going public as a follower of Christ? Let me pray for us. God, our hearts are idol factories. We feel it. We know it. God, I certainly know it. Uh, I thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is winning in my life. And things that used to be idols just seem exactly like that. They're just, uh, they can't save me. They can't even provide meaning and they will make me sick. I think you're doing that in other people's hearts. I thank you even this morning for the testimony of somebody who said, you know what, my neighbor didn't have an air conditioner. And so I went and I bought them a portable unit this weekend. Uh, God, so what a beautiful picture of the replacing of a, an orchard idol of materialism and stuff with a gospel value of laying down our life and loving our neighbor. Lord, that stuff's happening all over our church and I'm so thankful for it. I pray that you would uproot, that who we are in Christ would uproot the things we hang on to that are created and good, but not you. And God, then I pray that we would replace the idols, that we would replace them with God's word. We would replace them with compassion and lay down your life, love and peace and encouraging one another and speaking into one another's lives. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who needs to cross over, maybe they're good people, maybe they're religious people, maybe they're people who are seeking, they need to cross over today. I pray that like the three circles says that they would repent and turn from themselves and believe the gospel, believe that Christ loves them and came toward them, comes to them, died for them, rose again so that they can have relationship. Lord, I pray that you would uproot the idols in our lives and we would replace them with your word, uh, with love, and with a compelling witness for our community and our world. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you um, for being here this morning. There, I, I literally was thinking, okay, who are